Welcome back to our study of the pastoral letters. Uh, and the pastoral letters, if you're not familiar with that term, uh, is First and Second Timothy and the letter to Titus. These are all traditionally considered to be authored by Paul. Uh, th that's, that's evidenced by the personal connection that Paul has with the recipient of these letters. Uh, and primarily that's Timothy, whom he called a son in the faith. Last time, we, we went through chapter 4, and we talked about the ideas of doctrine, the ideas of, of purity of doctrine and strength in teaching doctrine, and holding fast to the things that they had been taught. Uh, we have to take into consideration the context that Paul's writing in. Ephesus was a very difficult place for evangelism, for the work of the gospel, and for the church's survival. Paul himself, when he helped to organize the congregation there, spent a few years there because there were so many threats to the strength of the church, uh, outside threats, threats from divisive people, threats from other religions or perversions of the Christian faith that were seeping into the area and into the, that time. So he put Timothy in charge. He left Timothy there to handle things, and, and he left. And now he's writing to Timothy to encourage him, to tell him to continue to be strong, and, and also to how to go about appointing people to help lead, to help shepherd. And chapter 5 are, are what we generally consider to be kind of instructions to different groups of people within the church. Again, uh, I want to uh, caution us that we consider this in the context it's written. We're reading someone else's mail. The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So we've got to take the concepts that occur in that context and apply them to us. But let's look at chapter 5. Paul writes, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So he's saying, you know, um, you need to look at these people as your family because they are family. They're a part of the community that we are all a part of. And uh, so look at them in this way. Look at them in this light and, and treat them as such. Verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Now that's an interesting phrase because uh, it, the implication there is that there are some who are not widows. Uh, maybe they're single women for one reason or another. And, and the idea is not that you only qualify for honor if you've lost your spouse. The idea is that um, we're, we're concerned as a church with helping those who are in need. And if this person is not truly destitute, if they have other means and resources, well, then we want to make sure that we're doing our best to make the best use of our resources in order to, uh, to help those who are in need. So honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness in their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow... Uh, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, uh, fair warning here that chapter 5 has some pretty strong language. Paul is expressing some frustration about the way that things are going with the Christians in Ephesus. There are people who are being carried off into false doctrine. They're being carried off into perverse religion, religious practices, and they're being carried off by their own selfishness. 
they're not taking care of one another. They're not looking after one another. Uh, they are becoming self-indulgent. And there are, there are those who are going around reaping the benefits of, of a, a widow who is in need because one of the primary benevolent outreaches of the church was caring for widows and orphans, right? And so they're reaping the benefit, but they don't actually suffer the, uh, the, the, the problems of a widow because they have someone who can care for them. They're just choosing to take advantage. And this is apparently a problem that, that Paul's dealing with. And he, he not only points out that this person who is purporting to be a widow uh, is doing so out of selfishness, but also those who are not caring for her uh, properly. There is a case where, you know, this person is not being cared for by their children or their grandchildren, and this is, but Paul says you need to give instruction to these people that you care for your family. You take care of your own family. This reduces the burden on the church. It reduces the burden on others, on society. And it is kind of God's pattern for how the world should look. Obviously, uh, there are exceptions to that in life. There are difficult relationships. There are people who are estranged. We understand this. But God's desire is that we would care for previous generations as they age, that we would look after them and make sure that they are well cared for that they don't become a burden to society or a burden to the church so that the church has the opportunity to, as a steward of its resources to help those who are truly destitute and without anyone um i it is pretty harsh to say that someone who who isn't providing for their relatives um or members of their household is worse than an unbeliever how do we reconcile that, that phrase how can you be worse than an unbeliever well, I think one recurring thing in Paul's writings has to do with what do we say about not only ourselves, but what do we say about Jesus by the way we live? Um, Jesus himself talks about that which is lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Um, God seems to have a problem with the middle ground. He doesn't, he does, you know, he wants all to believe, to come to know him and to be saved. And he's okay with the saved people. He, he, he's got a challenge with the unbeliever, and he's trying to bring them to be with him. But then there's the one in the middle. Now, what is the crime of the one in the middle? They say they believe, they proclaim that they believe, and yet they don't live accordingly. That's the worst possible combination. The reason that's the worst possible combination is because what you are saying and what you are doing are two different things. And hypocrisy is very damaging both to yourself, but also to those who observe you. Because here someone says, I'm a child of God. I believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and I am saved on that basis. And then they live a life that is not consistent with that. They live a life of selfishness and indulgence and doing harm to others or ignoring the plight of others. And people see that and they go, well, if that's what Jesus is about, I want no part of it. can't tell you how many people that I talk to on a regular basis who want nothing to do with church because it's full of hypocrites. And my response to that is, well, yeah, because we're human beings. And whoever told you that the church is supposed to be full of perfect people is wrong. They were either, either stupid or a liar. That's pretty much your only choices. But the problem is we have that expectation that there's to be perfection amongst Christians, that because we are, we say, oh, we're going to act right all the time. Uh, no, but we've kind of promoted that image that we're the saved, therefore we're going to act like it. The fact is that we turn a lot of people off by acting 
different than what we say we are. And when our behavior is inconsistent with our proclamation, we not only are hypocrites and lying to God and to ourselves. Uh, we can read uh, 1 John chapter 1. Um, John goes on at length that if we, if, we, if we say that we are in the light, but we walk in darkness, well, then, then we're lying to ourselves. Um, if, if we say one thing and we do another, that hypocrisy is, is, is a lie we tell ourselves, it's a lie we tell God, and it's a lie that we tell the world that they see right through. And the reason that those who don't care for their relatives are worse than unbelievers is because we sit around talking about loving one another, loving our neighbor, loving God, caring for the hurting, and your own grandmother has no one to take care of her because you don't want to. See, that's a problem, and Paul is apparently having to deal with that because it's going on in this church in Ephesus. And he's having to say, how can you say love one another? Do as Jesus would do, but not care for your own family member and allow someone else to or the church to have to pick up the tab or what have you. That kind of hypocrisy demonstrates to the world that you don't believe what you're teaching. And now that's worse than an unbeliever. If I say I don't believe in God and I don't believe in Jesus and I'm not living according to God's will, that's fine. That's consistent. If I say I am a believer and I live according to God's will, that's consistent as well. But the hypocrisy of saying I believe in Jesus and not living accordingly, that's an inconsistency. It's troubling to God, it's dishonest to ourselves, and it is revealing to the world, and I think a major source of the hard feelings that some people have about church. Because we have for too long put up this facade of saying, well, we must be perfect because we are saved, and we're the good guys. And no, we don't do anything wrong because we're saved. We need to be honest about the fact that we mess up a lot. And we need to correct it when we can. And this is one area Paul says should be corrected. Now here in verse 9 he says, Let a widow be enrolled. And what he means by that is, this is the, this is the he's giving him instructions for, here is how you make a list uh, to determine the widows that you will extend benevolence to. That is, from the church treasury you will be providing assistance to these people. How do we determine which ones? Paul's going to lay some ground rules here. Now, again, I'll caution you. I don't believe that your congregation or my congregation should go making the list of the widows that we're going to help and assist uh, using the same criteria that Paul uses here in chapter 5. That's the criteria for Ephesus. It is not the criteria for us. We have to use these principles, uh, and the principles, I think, broadly are stewardship of benevolence. We are responsible for caring for those who can't care for themselves as a church. We should be looking after those people, and we need to be discerning about how we do it, but in love. And there's nothing wrong with making some discernment about it because we have limited resources that we have to deploy uh, in the name of, of God. So let's look at these um, requirements. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Okay, whoa, wait a minute now. What are we talking about? 
what is going on here? You're not allowed to remarry if you're a widow? No. Um, again, we're talking about some things that are specific to, for Paul and, and Ephesus. Okay, so this part about, you know, having been the wife of one husband and, and, and a certain age and a reputation. Well, we want to make sure the people that we're going to put at the top of the list, they're going to receive these limited resources, are of an age where they're no longer, the, the possibility of remarriage is probably gone. I mean, once you're over 60, at least in this time, it's probably not going to happen for you again. So the chances of you needing, you know, assistance are, are greater. You've got a good reputation. We know that you, you know, that you are someone who has shown faithfulness. And it's not be that because of your faithfulness you now deserve this. It's that we know that the as we give these, you know, this assistance to you, which came from the pockets of the, the rest of this congregation, we know that you'll be a good steward of it. We know you'll be deserving of it in the sense that you're not going to suddenly disappear and no longer be contributing to our congregation, no longer being a part of our our work, you're not suddenly going to decide you're not a Christian anymore. Uh, you've got a you've got a, a track record here. Now, what about the ones we're going to refuse to enroll? Well, the younger ones, first of all. Why? It says because when their passions draw them away from Christ, they des desire to marry. What does that mean? Their passions draw them away from Christ. They desire to marry. Um, I would think that younger widows naturally are going to have the potential to remarry at a, at a higher uh, a higher chance than the older ones, certainly. But this passions draw them away from Christ. Well, they're younger, and they have the opportunity to possibly remarry. There may be eligible bachelorettes at this point, um, and their focus may not be where it needs to be. Their focus may be on finding a husband to care for them. And if that's where their focus is, then, then that needs to be their focus. And their focus cannot be on serving the church and, and serving God. And so Paul says, understanding where younger widows are at, they are in a particular place in life and they need to go and pursue what they are needing to pursue in life. Because they want to be married. They want to have a partner. They want to be joined with someone. And so they're going to be pursuing that. And sometimes their focus is not going to be on the right things. They're going to be chasing after that. And for that reason, we must prioritize differently. And it says here, though, and this is the tough part, uh, that they'll marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. All it means is that as a younger widow, the opportunity to be remarried sometimes can produce a temptation to chase after that. And it gets your priorities out of whack. Suddenly you want to be because in this day and age, to be married was to be cared for. If you did not have a husband, you had to rely on children. If you did not have children or a husband, you were destitute. And you had to rely on the goodwill of others or distant relatives or the church. Now, if you're a younger widow and you know the possibility of remarriage exists, then you're going to be pursuing that. And it's going to become your priority. And suddenly it's possible that the church and Christ become less of a priority and you begin living or behaving in such a way that's not consistent with your faith because your priorities are out of whack. Does that mean that younger widows are more likely to sin or, or fornicate or anything? No. Paul is addressing an issue of the day. There were many people claiming widow status for benefits from the church. And Paul's saying, okay, it's time to use some discernment. We understand that the older women who are widows who have a long track record of service 
they're a, they're a safer bet when it comes to being mindful of the resources we have. When we look at the younger widows, we understand that there's the, because they know they could get remarried because they're kind of still, they kind of are, are still on the market, so to speak. They kind of still uh, catch the eye of a, of a man from time to time. So because of that, we know that there's going to be the chance that they're drawn off into the into this fanciful world of, of dating again, uh, and their focus may drift, and they may abandon their faith and abandon their good works in order to pursue a, a husband. And, and that's a very real possibility, particularly in a place like Ephesus where there were people from all over the world who were coming into that place, a uh, very worldly place. And so in order to find a man, a younger widow is more likely to compromise than an older widow. And in compromising, she will abandon the faith and incur judgment. Does not mean that getting remarried sends you to hell. Okay, so let's take this all with a grain of salt. Uh, verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the uh, adversary no occasion for slander. So what Paul is saying here is there, there are, there, there's a tendency among these younger women that they, they don't always bring with them the most positive element. They can be troublemakers sometimes. Uh, and so they need to get married because he says, you know, they're going to get remarried and leave their faith. Well, he, he doesn't mean that remarrying is leaving the faith. He means that in pursuit of remarriage, one might be tempted to abandon their faith or compromise their faith. Later, he says, what I'd really like to see is the younger widows, that, that they would get married, they would start a family or have a family, and that they would tend to their matters and contribute to the church and contribute to society in that way that we may focus on the older widows. So he wants them to get remarried. It's, it's his desire that they would get remarried, but that they would do so in a way that was faithful to God and that would, um, again, give the adversary a, no occasion for slander. Do not give Satan an opportunity to accuse you because that's what Satan is. He's an accuser. Very similarly, he says in chapter 14, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And we talked about what that really means. That means don't give someone a reason to talk bad about you. Be an example. Verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule, um, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay, we'll explain this in a minute. Let's wrap up the widows thing. Um, this is not the most politically correct uh, couple of passages in scripture we're talking about women and we're talking about you know judging whether they're really deserving of assistance and remarriage and the roles of women in society it's a different time it was a different time then in the middle part of the first century we understand that these are not instructions that are meant to be kept hard and fast by churches today uh, we're meant to take these principles and apply them so what's the principle we are to be good stewards of the resources we have, be that money, time, energy, what have you. And in our stewardship of those things, um, we are at liberty to make some judgment calls sometimes. It may be hard, it may be a little ugly and messy, but uh, we must do that from time to time. Now, we move on to talk about elders here, and he says, let those who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, this is where Paul talks about the 
um, the authority or the option to compensate leaders in church financially, um, whether it be preachers and uh, uh, which I am one, um, and it is my it is my profession, it is my job, and I'm compensated for it. Uh, that's true, um, but there are some I think even still that look at it and go, well, I don't. It's, it's almost unseemly that you would be paid to do the Lord's work. Um, if I was not paid, you know, it would be a very difficult thing to do on a full-time basis. Um, it would, and, and we're all required. I mean, we're all under the Great Commission. We are all to be teaching. We're all to be um, sharing the gospel. We're all to be evangelizing, certainly. But church leadership uh, and ministry in a real dedicated and um, intentional way not just in our daily life and our relationships, not just evangelism in our in our day to day, but I mean the, the people who are dedicated to helping to lead, manage, and and evangelize in that church setting, um, they certainly are more than able to be compensated for it uh, because it does preserve that role. It does help us to find qualified people who can give that time. I, I have no problem, and I know I'm biased here, I have no problem with the paying of ministers. Uh, that wasn't a matter of controversy. Located paid ministers was at one time a matter of controversy amongst certain churches at different times. There's always been, been some debate on that. Um, and yet, you know, we accept uh, the fact now it's, it seems pretty normal. We, we accept it. But this one's interesting because in most churches, at least particularly in Churches of Christ, which is my background, we select elders, they're completely volunteer. Um, and I think that's probably true for most elder boards or trustees or what have you in different churches. Um, they do that for free. But the Bible here says, and Paul writes here, that, hey, these elders who, who fulfill these duties, in a, who are especially good at their job, um, you consider them, uh, they're worthy of consideration for double honor. The honor for the title and the role, but also the honor of payment, compensation. And of course for preachers and teachers as well. Now, um, I could go on and on for quite a while about my opinions about ministers and the compensation of ministers, both how it's sometimes too little and sometimes too much. Um, I could go on about my opinions about the economics of the labor market for ministry. Uh, and how we approach ministry in our modern churches, I will spare you that. That's for another day, and it's mostly just a rant of my personal opinion. Uh, but here, Paul says that it is certainly acceptable to compensate leaders in the church for their efforts. Uh, and he cites here what the scripture says in verse 18, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Allow the ox while it's doing the work of treading out the grain, right? The ox would walk across the grain, it would break the wheat and the chaff open and so on and so forth. Um, while they're grinding that grain, uh, they might stop and eat a few nibbles of it. Good, let them. They've earned it. Let them eat and let them feed themselves and enrich themselves as they go doing this work because it is beneficial to the church. And Paul says, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and, and also quotes here, the laborer deserves his wages. Um, so he's saying, hey, uh, perfectly acceptable for these people to be compensated in some way for their time and for their effort. Uh, 
do not admit, verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, usually two or three witnesses were required in, in Jewish custom anyway for accusations. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Uh, and then he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. There's, uh, Paul has some knowledge here that Timothy suffers from a stomach ailment. And so he puts in here a little bit of uh, medical advice as well. Uh, if we wrote this today, it would come with a dozen different disclaimers so that someone wasn't sued. But in this case, Paul gives a little medicinal advice as well to drink a little wine. Uh, and yes, it is alcoholic wine. Okay, don't. I don't need your comments or letters. It just is. Okay. Um, so, the sins of some people are conspicuous. Verse 24, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. And so also good works are conspicuous. And even those who are not, who, who, those that are not, cannot remain hidden. He's saying, you're going to eventually see the good. And you're going to eventually see the bad. Sin has a way of being found out. And good has a way of being found out. Go about doing good. Use discernment in all things. Be good stewards of your resources. Above all, respect and love one another and take care of one another. Sometimes taking care of one another can be hard and can be messy. Sometimes making decisions about who's going to receive help and assistance from a church can be hard and messy. Sometimes accusations of wrongdoing against people in positions of leadership can shake us to our core. And sometimes those who are trying to sow the seeds of dissent trouble us. Paul says, keep your head on, focus on Jesus, do as he would do, be wise, and love. Love one another. We'll move on to chapter 6. We're moving right along through these three wonderful letters of Paul. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue the pastoral letters.